Good morning. How are y'all doing today? Wonderful, blessed. That's great. Well, we are uh, we're kicking off a new sermon series this morning. We're going to be going. Uh, we're going to be taking a summer and walking through the Beatitudes and just going one at a time, uh, slowly moving through this pieces of this piece of scripture. And uh, just for um, just to, to put this out there and to give us uh, to give us all of us a little personal accountability. One thing that we've said we're going to do this summer as we try to just slow down and typically we take the summers and try to focus on rest somewhat. Uh, the, the teaching team got together and decided, hey, we really need to shoot for like 30-minute sermons. Uh, so I told uh, John, the sound guy this morning, I said, my, my aim is 30 minutes this morning. I, I'm not promising anything, but I'm aiming for 30 minutes. So uh, we'll see how that goes. But um, this morning, we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to go ahead and read our text this morning, and uh, then we'll talk a little bit about the context of it. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So just a little context for this as we dive into the Beatitudes. Uh, this passage is sandwiched between, uh, between two other passages. So if you look backwards just a little bit, if you turn back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, uh, you find this verse. It says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so you see Jesus in that verse doing two things, um, teaching and preaching, and healing. And then if you, if you fast forward, if we go uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, so the Beatitudes is the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. If we go to the other side of the Sermon on the Mount, we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, and you hear really almost verbatim the same thing. And Matthew 9, verse 35 says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And so if we then, if we take the, the, the chunk of Scripture that's between those two verses, which essentially gives us Matthew um, 5, 6, 7, and 8. So we've got four chapters of Matthew, four chapters of, um, of, uh, of this story. And the first, two, the, the first two, the first three, Matthew 5 through 7, we have what's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And then if you look at chapters 8 and 9, you see really just stories of Jesus doing ministry, mostly stories of Jesus doing healing ministry. And so sandwiched between those verses saying Jesus went throughout all the cities, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. Sandwiched between those two verses, we have what's, what this is a part of this passage. And essentially Jesus teaches for the first half of the passage and then in the second half of the passage, he, uh, he essentially does ministry where he, he heals those who are sick. And so that's, that's a little bit of the context of where we kind of jump into this passage. This is the very beginning of the most famous sermon ever spoken, the Sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes are, uh, are really announcements. They're announcements that... Uh, that that, uh, that announce a blessing onto people. So even in the passage we're looking at this morning in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it's an announcement that someone, whoever Jesus is speaking to, someone is very fortunate. 
because they're, they're blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Someone is very fortunate, but that's not all. It's not just an announcement. It's also, for those who are listening to this sermon, for those who are listening, it's also an implicit invitation. So if I were to come and, and announce that someone is blessed, even for those around that, that person, for those around it who hear it, there is inside of us a desire that if we hear someone else is blessed, we also desire that as well, don't we? There's an, there's an implicit invitation in the Beatitudes as Jesus announces these blessings for, for those of us who hear it to also desire these same things. And so as Jesus essentially says to his disciples how, how fortunate you are, how blessed you are because of these things, there's also an invitation. There's an invitation to all those around who hear it. And because as Jesus was teaching, there were, there were essentially concentric circles here because it says his disciples were there, but there was also a great crowd. And so Jesus, speaking to his disciples, announces these blessings. But then there's also the crowd. So the crowd is full of people. The crowd is full of people who just came, and they came because they, they had heard of Jesus, and he just drew a crowd everywhere he went. And so they just came to hear what he had to say. And so Jesus announces these blessings over his disciples and at the same time, all those around him also heard these blessings. And in the Beatitudes, there is an implicit invitation that you also can be blessed. And so we're going to do, uh, do things a little different this morning as we look at this passage of Scripture. And you may see this pattern repeated some this summer as we study the Beatitudes. But we're, we're going to look at this passage of Scripture. We're going to answer five questions. We've got the five questions on the screen. The five questions are really simple. What do the Scriptures say? Why don't we do it? What did Jesus do? How does this make all the difference? And how does the Holy Spirit empower us? How does this make all the difference and how does the Holy Spirit empower us? This morning, we're gonna, those last two questions, we're going to kind of combine into one. But uh, as we walk through these Beatitudes, you may see that pattern uh, throughout the teaching of this passage. So we're going to jump right into the very first question. What do the scriptures say? So we've got a, a short passage here. So I'm, I'm going to read it one more time. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountains and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So really the question that we have to ask is what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What is Jesus talking about to be poor in spirit? And the first thing I think we have to, to answer is what does it not mean? Because a lot of times we hear that word poor and we immediately start to think about just an economic situation. So Jesus is not talking about a, an economic situation. Um, poor in spirit is not the same or equivalent to being, um, to being poor or needy from a financial perspective. This is a spiritual condition, not a physical condition. A spiritual condition. So to be, to be poor in spirit is a realization that you have nothing to offer God. You have nothing to offer God. There is, there is no redeeming quality in yourself that draws God toward you. You can't earn his favor by acting a certain way or having a certain attitude. There is nothing good inside of you, no innate quality that you are just born with that draws God's favor toward you. You are saved by grace and grace alone. 
And we, we learn that in Scripture. We see it in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And another way we can answer this is what does it mean to be poor in spirit? We can actually, we can look at Scripture and let's, let's find stories of individuals who fit that description. And you can do that all throughout Scripture. Just a few examples. Look at the life of Gideon. The life of Gideon, if you turn, you don't have to turn there, but if you look back in Judges chapter 6, you see the part of the story of Gideon. And in chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, you find this passage. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Gideon's reply He says, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you. You see, Gideon recognized that there was was nothing in himself that was able to accomplish what God was calling him to. And God's answer to him was very simple. I will be with you. You see it in the life of Moses, who felt deeply unworthy and conscious of his own faults and inadequacies. As he was called to go back to Egypt and bring the Israelites out, and he said, God, you you must have the wrong person. I I can't even speak well. And God said, who made man's mouth? I will be with you. See it in the spirit of David, when he said, who am I that you would come to me? It was incredible to David that God would, God would come to him. It was astonishing to him. And you see it in the life of Isaiah. In Isaiah, in a very, very well-known passage in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, when Isaiah finds himself in a vision face to face with God, and he falls down and he says these words, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Lastly, you see it uh, in the book of Job. Job was a man who at at the beginning of his story had great wealth, and he had essentially everything anyone could have ever asked for. And throughout the story of Job's life, we see all those things stripped away one by one, and then eventually, towards the end of the book of Job, Job has an encounter with God himself. And through a series of questions that God, God asks Job, he realizes how small he is. And then he says these words, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes." poor in spirit, recognizing that we have nothing in and of ourselves that when we come and stand before God Almighty, that there is nothing inside of us that we can bring to him, nothing that we can offer to him, nothing that will gain his favor or win his approval. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. So why is that a struggle for us? Why don't we, why don't we do that? Why don't we find ourselves more often being poor in spirit? And I think that there's a few questions that we can ask ourselves. I don't have these on the screen, but you can just listen. And this, is, this can almost serve as a litmus test to see kind of where we are spiritually when it comes to being poor in spirit. So listen to these questions, and you can just answer them to yourself. How do I really think of myself and my standing before God? 
how do I really think of myself and my standing before God? How does my standing before God and my my vertical relationship with God affect my horizontal relationships with people here on this earth? I'll ask it again. How does my standing before God and my vertical relationship affect my horizontal relationship here on this earth? Do I often find myself comparing myself to others? Do I often find myself comparing myself to others? What are the things that I think about? When you find yourself alone, when you find yourself with time, where does your mind go? What are things that you think about? Lastly, what kind of things do I pray for? What kind of things do I pray for? When I find myself in prayer, is it primarily about my own desires and my own needs? Or am I consciously thinking outside of myself? What kind of things do I pray for? And so one reason that we, that we don't find ourselves being very poor in spirit, and, and in a way we have to look at the opposite. So if we're not finding ourselves being poor in spirit, we have to ask the opposite. Why are we so rich in pride? Why are we so rich in pride? What lies do we believe that cause the cancer of pride to creep into our hearts? Lies that, uh, that Satan may just subtly whisper in our ear from time to time. Lies like, um, you, don't, you don't really need help with this. You can, you can handle this on your own. You don't need to be open with anyone because you can, you can take care of this. And lies like, I, I, don't, I don't really need to spend time in, the, in God's word today. I, I, don't, I don't really need that because life is just, life is going pretty good right now. So I don't know that I really need God today because life, I can handle things that are coming my way today. What lies do we believe that allow pride to creep up into our heart and our life? Jonathan Edwards, we have this quote on the screen, Jonathan Edwards said this. He said, it is the most secret of all sins. The most secret of all sins. There is no other matter in which the heart is more deceitful and unsearchable. And there is no other sin in the world that men are so confident in. The very nature of it is to work self-confidence and drive away any suspicion of any evil of that kind. I think particularly in America where we find ourselves raised with this pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps mentality, we find it incredibly difficult to lay down the sin of pride and to to come before God and and to come before others recognizing and, and saying, I can't do everything on my own that I need help. If I'm going to walk with Christ, if I'm going to, if I'm going to turn away from myself, if I'm going to put myself to death and, and take up my cross and follow Jesus, I can't do that by myself. Because everything in culture says that you need to be self-confident. That you need to be able to, to take care of your own problems. That you need to be able to just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And so we have working against us this culture that says you should be able to handle it. You should be able to do it. And if you can't do it, then something's wrong with you. And so we allow this sin of pride just to creep up into our hearts. Josh Squires is a professional Christian counselor. 
He wrote an article uh, entitled, Pride is Your Greatest Problem. Pride is your greatest problem. And he wrote this article in response to, um, he, said, uh, he said that when anytime somebody finds out, finds out your profession, a lot of times that comes with um, lots of questions because uh, you're considered an expert in that field. And so, um, and Jeff can attest to this, if you're a plumber, uh, you automatically get lots of uh, questions where people ask about the pipes in their house and why this is happening and how can they fix this. And if you're a doctor, you get lots of questions about my back hurts and it's been hurting for a week and a half. Like, what's wrong with me? Um, he said as, as a professional counselor, the question that he often got is, what is, what is the biggest problem that people face? What's the biggest problem people face? And uh, he said people a lot of times would expect to hear, um, to hear a lot of different things, either marriage trouble or um, trouble with children. But uh, his answer was the, the biggest problem that people face is their own pride. And I, I'm going to read just an excerpt from, uh, from that article. And uh, we don't have it on the screen, but I'm just going to ask you guys to, to just follow along and listen along. He says this, in the counseling room, when couples come to me for the first time, they often have a list of offenses committed against them by their spouse, as well as a rehearsed inventory of behaviors they expect their partner to change. Similarly, parents often bring children to counseling reporting they need to learn new ways of being respectful, self-controlled, and helpful. Also, individuals come in with their catalog of ways in which the world around them has failed to serve them in their quest for joy, comfort, and security. These offenses need to be heard and heard tenderly. Our brothers and sisters in Christ need to experience something of the steadfast love of God in the moments when they unpack some of their most painful wounds. A doctor once told me that effective medicine exists at the intersection of tact, timing, and dosage. The same can be said of counseling and many other disciplines too, I'm sure. Furthermore, the behaviors that they want to see changed often do indeed need reformation. At the same time, during the course of our work together, when I change the perspective and ask leading questions like, what have you done to your spouse or kid or world? Or what might you need to repent? Or this is a, an excellent uh, question for, for anyone uh, who's ever done any counseling. How can you display Christ to them in the same way that you long for them to display Christ to you? He goes on to say, I don't usually get answers, but hurt and confused stares. And often, I get downright indignation. I get pride. That was his answer as a professional Christian counselor for the greatest problem that people are facing today is just simply their own pride and their unwillingness to face it and recognize it. And then how it creeps into their relationships, how it creeps into their marriages with their spouse, how it creeps into their relationship with their children, and they place just expectations on others to, to, to change, and to essentially they place expectations on, on the world around them to, to change so that it better fits what they want from it. And that's, that's pride that creeps into our heart. And so we struggle to be poor in spirit because we have a great struggle with pride. So what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? How was Jesus poor in spirit? How was Jesus poor in spirit? Well, one, um, Jesus became a man. 
And that's really simple, and if we're not careful, we can, uh, we can just look over that fact as just a, just a basic theology that, uh, that most people who call themselves Christians would agree with, that, uh, that, that God became a man. But I think that we need to slow down for a minute this morning and just recognize that idea and that fact that God would step out of heaven and that he would come down to earth, that he would wrap himself in the, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and that he would walk as a man, that he would choose to live life as a man, that the creator would become the created. That in and of itself is just a, a beautiful example of Jesus being poor in spirit, of, of stepping down and stepping away from his, from his majesty and stepping down and, and lowering himself, humbling himself to walking as a man. Philippians 2.6 says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And he decided that while he was here on earth, that he would live as a man, though he was God. And so let's, let's examine his life. Let's examine some of the things that Jesus said and some of the things that Jesus did to see how, how can we see him demonstrate being poor in spirit. And so if we do that, we, we see a few things. We see in John 5.30, Jesus says these words. This is Jesus, the God-man, saying these words. I can do nothing on my own. I can do nothing on my own. John 12.49, he says, The words I am speaking to you are not mine, but the Father who sent me. In John 6.38, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus essentially, over and over again throughout Scripture, says, I can do nothing. I am utterly dependent on the Father. The God-man saying, I can do nothing. I am utterly dependent on the Father. Look at his prayer life. If you look at the prayer life of Jesus, you see someone who spent hours, hours in prayer, who would get up early before the sun came up and, and go and spend time alone. He would get away from people to spend time with the Father. He modeled complete dependency on the Father. He modeled it for us. He modeled being poor in spirit, a complete lack of, of pride or self-reliance, an understanding of just a complete nothingness in the presence of Almighty God, a perfect example. Philippians 2.8 says, "...in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Jesus lived a perfect life and was so obedient to the Father and was, was so willing to, to, to allow the Father to, to track every step that, that he would say words like, I can't, I can't do anything on my own. This isn't just Jesus here. This is Jesus living a life in submission to the will of the Father. And so I can't do anything on my own. He humbled himself. And so how does this make all the difference? What does that mean for us? If we're, if we're going to be followers of Christ, what is, how can we look at, the, at the, the call of scriptures that says that we need to be poor in spirit? How can we look at, at who we are and why we don't do that and then look at and see what Jesus did? And then how do we apply it? What, is it? what does it mean for us? How can we be more poor in our own spirit? 
Well, the life that, that Jesus lived and his, his death, his burial, and his resurrection frees us from the bondage to ourselves. And it's, it's one of the reasons why I believe that, that this is the first beatitude in this list. So there's a list of beatitudes. This is the very first one. I don't think that it was just a random way that Jesus decided to teach through these beatitudes. He didn't just pick them from a hat. Uh, this is the first one for a reason. And he does it to show that the poverty of spirit is the foundation and the basis for everything that comes after this. For all other beatitudes, we have to have this foundation and this basis, being poor in spirit. And you see that, and you see even an equivalent. When you look at the economically poor, they tend to gravitate toward places that their needs can be met, right? And that's, that's why a, a soup kitchen works, because you, you open a soup kitchen and hungry people who have needs to eat, they come there. They gravitate towards places where their needs can be met. And so recognizing one's spiritual poverty parallels to this and motivates us to, to seek to have that need supplied through a relationship with God. And that relationship with God is really only made possible because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Because on the cross, he took our, our sin and our shame and our guilt before the Father and he laid it on himself and that God the Father was, was satisfied and we were justified by the actions of Jesus. And so to be poor in spirit means we don't boast in ourselves. It means we don't boast in ourselves because there's nothing good inside of us. It means we don't boast in our nationalities. That it doesn't matter what, what country you're from or, or where your family is from. It means we don't boast in our families, our accomplishments. We don't boast in our skin color, our income, our possessions the car we drive, the house we live in. You don't boast in your political affiliations, even your various social justice stances that you like to, 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 to stand on and be a voice for. None of it matters. When you come face to face with God, there's one thing that matters, and that is, do you know Christ? Do you know him? Because of what Christ did, that's the only way that we can stand before God and not melt in fear. And so wherever you, wherever you fall on that spectrum of passions, wherever you fall on that spectrum of passions related to just all the earthly things that I just mentioned, you will fall to your knees before the Father and you will echo the cry of Isaiah, woe is me, I am poor, wretched, and sinful. God have mercy on me. Whatever your accomplishments in this life, wherever in, in your own selfishness and pride, wherever you think you stand, whatever you think you've accomplished, no matter how good of a person you think you are, when you come before a holy God, none of that stands. None of it stands. Only what we've done for Christ and only who we are in Christ I'm going to finish with, uh, I'm going to finish with this. Um, there is a, uh, a hymn written in 1763 called Rock of Ages. And it was written by a man named Augustus Toplady. And uh, the words, the words of that hymn go like this. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. 
Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Wash me, Savior, or I die. I'm going to ask the, the band to come back up, and we're going we're gonna to finish up this passage this morning. Um, as the band comes up, I've got three, three questions that, uh, that I want us to, to, to write. If you take notes, write these down. If you take notes, write these down. These questions are, whose, whose sin are you focused on? Whose sin are you focused on? Are you focused on, on others' sin? Do you find yourself often, when a, when a sermon is being taught, do you find yourself often thinking, man, I wish so-and-so was here because they really need to hear this. Anybody ever thought that before? I'm gonna raise my hand. Whose sin do you focus on? What is the focus of your joy, security, and contentment? What is the focus of your joy, your security, and your contentment? Because you can find it in, in things in this world. You can search for those things in this world, or you can find them in Christ. You can search for them in this world, or you can find them in Christ. And lastly, who is the focus of your service? Who is the focus of your service? Is it yourself, or is it others? Are you constantly wanting the, the world and everyone around you to, to change and to adapt to better serve you? Or are you constantly seeking to change and adapt so that you can better serve those around you? Who is the focus of your service? Those three questions really do an, an, an excellent job of, of identifying areas in our life where we are not being poor in spirit where we have pride built up into our lives. And so this week, I'm gonna ask you guys just to, to spend some time just focusing on those questions. Spend some time in prayer, asking God to reveal areas of your life that are full of pride and full of sin. And this morning, as we, as we take a moment to, uh, to come forward and share the Lord's Supper together, as we come to the table, I'm gonna ask you guys just to, to take a minute. Before you come, take a minute. Take a minute to repent of, uh, of pride in your life. Take a minute to repent of, of areas that exist in your life where you have, just, you have refused to recognize that pride exists here. And take a minute to, to turn to Jesus and ask forgiveness. Ask forgiveness. And then as you come up to this table and as you take of the bread and as you take of the juice, remember what Christ has done for you. Remember that because of Christ, because of his body broken for you and his blood poured out for you, remember that you are able, you are able to, to come to God and you are able to come to God and not just, not just fall down broken. You can come to God as your father. Though you have nothing in Christ, you have everything. I'm gonna pray for us. God, we thank you for this morning. God, thank you for this, this passage of scripture. God, this, uh, this reminder that your call in our life, uh, God, is to be poor in spirit. That there's nothing good inside of us. That there is nothing that makes us worthy. There's nothing that, uh, that we can do to earn your favor or to earn your blessing. God, it is only because of Jesus. God, only because of the work of the cross, only because of forgiveness that is found there. So God, this morning as, as we come and as we take of, of the bread and the juice, God, may we just be reminded of that. 
God, help us to turn away from sin. God, help us to turn away from, from prideful areas of our life. God, help us to see them. God, oftentimes our biggest stumbling block, our biggest hurdle is that we just refuse to take the blinders off. God, we refuse to just step back and look at our own life. And God, just be honest with the assessment of what we see. So God, may we look into the mirror of Scripture. And God, may we see the life that you lived. God, may we just compare it to our own life. And God, see where do we fall short? God, in those areas, God, through your, through your grace and through your Holy Spirit moving and working in our lives, God, I pray that you would draw us close to yourself, that God, we could repent of those areas and turn to you. God, live lives that are honoring and pleasing to you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.